Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number five in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, March the 16th. And first of all, I talk to Michelle Duval, an international business coach. She works with many of Australia's fast-growth venture success stories. Her latest innovation, Fingerprint for Success, or F. S was developed after Michelle led a world first study into the attitudes and motivations of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and business owners. It is a sophisticated platform based on a 20-year study to identify unique entrepreneurial talents and highlight blind spots that could pose a possible risk to business success. And then I talked to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. We'll be talking about what's likely to be in the federal government's budget, which is only a few weeks away, and it will be an election budget. But first, let's talk to Michelle Duval. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Michelle, you work with so many clients from CEOs and managers, writers and actors. I mean, how similar are their requirements? Oh, wow. Well, I think of them all as creative artists. I think of them all as individuals who are inventing the future. They're creating the arts and the entertainment. They're creating products. They're inventing all sorts of different things and, of course, leading out and creating organisations. And so there's some similarities between all of them and then there's a whole lot of differences that they all have, of course, to the different application of what they do. So what sort of similarities do they have? I mean, how do you manage that? 
Well, we've done a whole lot of research. So we studied a whole lot of attitudes and motivations of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. And we found that those who are successful, for example, have a whole lot of different attitudes. And in contrast to the rest of the workforce, these people have some similarities. And some of those are that they are rapid to take action. So successful creative artists, such as entrepreneurs, are quick to turn their ideas into action to take the very first step. They have a very low interest in concrete details, so they're more happy to be abstract and global and therefore to move rapidly and very quickly. They also abhor structure and planning. So they don't like, you know, complex business plans or product plans and those sorts of things. Their more desire is to quickly test something and get it validated and then they'll build and plan stuff around it. It's very much like entrepreneurs and writers and actors are very similar in that way? We haven't done the same quantitative research that we did as to the entrepreneurs, but what we find is qualitatively that they are much more reflective. They won't necessarily enact their ideas as quickly as entrepreneurs do. Writers and actors and other creative artists such as producers or actual fine artists and painters often will sit with something until the organic time comes to be able to express it. So they're much more reflective and patient. And that's why from my body of work, we can see that sometimes those sorts of creative artists don't commercialize what they do in the same way that entrepreneurs do is because that's a real difference between them. Right, right. I mean, you have many different coaching models. Tell us about them. So we we think of coaching in three different ways. So we think of performance coaching, which is helping to people to make incremental or create new skills and behaviours. So that's called performance coaching. And then you've got developmental coaching, which is coaching people at an evolutionary level, which is about their beliefs, their attitudes, their self-identity. And then we have what we call developmental coaching, which is all about transformational change which is you know people changing their direction in life or their career which is kind of really revolutionary so they're the three sort of models that we for example focus on and then we build out what we do for the clients and the people based on whatever their goals are Um, so some clients have goals and some don't actually have goals they just have things they want to solve in their commercial or creative life right so so what are some of the big issues that you found with your clients in terms of coaching? So I've I've been coaching now for 20 years and, you know, every single person is unique and one of, I think, the real challenges that we face is that each person has got a unique vision and mission and they've got a unique way they want to express themselves and I've made it my mission to not impose any particular model on an individual. So I have this inherent belief that, There is no right way to lead someone or to support someone that they have an infinite intelligence, a unique genius. And this is why I distinguish coaching from training and from consulting because training and consulting and even mentoring comes in and says, we have the right way. Follow our method or my past experiences in this business, for example, when someone's a mentor, this is what you should do. And there's an important role and function for those professional modalities. But from a coaching perspective, we say, and the principle inherent in coaching is, you have all the resources. My role is to facilitate your unique expression and you being able to develop that to its fullest potential. So what that means is, as a coach, the sorts of issues that we face is helping these individuals to quality assess and test and try on some of the really creative crazy things that they want to do that will be world-changing 
It might be a new thought leadership. It might be a new product. It could be a different way of doing business or managing people, for example. And if we come and say, well, you know, best practice says it should be this way, we'd be uh, imposing something on them rather than unleashing that which isn't in the world yet. So as that sort of a coach, we need to co-invent tools and techniques and practices with the client. Right. Okay. Well, tell us about the International Meta Coach Foundation. Yeah. So that was started in 2002 by Dr. Michael Hall and myself. We started that after we wrote a couple of books together on the models that we created. So we created self-actualizing coaching models. And then we found that we wanted to have an independent body that was separate from our training programs that would be able to rigorously credential and create a real profession out of coaching. You've got to remember back, this is early in the field of coaching. I had my first coaching practice. I started that in 1997. And that was only like 18 months after the first coach training school in the US kind of started to emerge and the the first uh, association to try and govern coaching. And so 2002 was still really early and we wanted to to create some credentials that coaches would work towards that would ensure their professionalism and ensure that they were meeting those standards. So that was the intention behind it being created. I've no longer been a part of that since 2007, since I left both of those businesses, but that's the intent for the MetaCoach Foundation. Right. So that was basically showing the direction for how to coach. Yeah, so we identified initially 26 coaching skills and then we identified competencies for each one of those skills and um, we created a framework to be able to benchmark coaches so that they could gauge what level of proficiency they were at at those skills. So at the time, it was the first benchmarking system in the world for credentialing coaches using benchmarks. That's quite amazing. Now, uh, how did you create a coaching model that's actually used globally? I mean, it's used right around the world. And secondly, how global is the reach? And do you expect to keep expanding? And finally, how different is it from country to country? Yeah, so that's a great question around culture. So we first of all launched the coach training in Australia. We launched it with two other professional coaches as well. And then the next place we went to was London, the UK, and then we went to South Africa and it's now being utilised in 45 countries. In terms of it continuing to evolve in the world, as I, I think I was just saying, I'm no longer actually involved in the commercial side of the business. And so I'm not sure what their vision is in terms of how meta coaching will continue to evolve in the world. But what we're finding is that coaching is certainly evolved and what I'm really satisfied and delighted is is that there are enormous amounts of academic rigour and research that's happening globally around the world. And interestingly, Sydney University led the way with the very first postgraduate program in coaching in the world. And there's enormous, enormous amounts of journals and papers now. So the world has certainly moved on and professional coaches and the, the way that people buy coaching in the world has continued to grow. Organisers organizations now have panels and they definitely know how to buy coaching. So that's definitely evolving. But back to your question around how it early started was that I was very grateful that when I started my business in 1997, after six months, I had a three-month waiting list, which then grew to a nine-month waiting list, which I've sustained since 1997, now 20 years. And I had all these people were coming to me who were other coaches who were struggling to have clients. And I helped to get involved with the International Coach Federation, establishing that in Australia in the early 2000s. And I met a lot of other coaches who were really struggling to have clients. And their model was that you get one client, you keep 
them for as long as you can. My model was you work with people for a finite period of time, three months, and then you complete working with them. So I was, I had this wait list and I, I had programs that were ending. So I had a continuous amount of people wanting to work with me. And a lot of coaches came to me and said, what's the sort of models you're using? What are you doing? So they came and said, what are your methods? And so I'd kind of invented a whole lot of models and things that I was internally using. And then I met Dr. Michael Hall, whose PhD is in cognitive behavioral psychologies and some self-actualizing psychologies. And so um, it was a natural thing to team up together. And he had a whole lot of the academic background. And then I had all of the practical case studies and all the qualitative stuff that we'd been doing. And that's how we, we teamed up to create the models. Michelle, that is absolutely fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. And now let's talk to economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, we are heading into a budget in a few weeks' time. What's your view about that? I think this is an election budget. The government are probably going to go to the polls early 2019. And so this is the last time that they can really get to calibrate their appeal to the public. So I think we're looking at election mode. And that means uh, sweeteners, money spent, tax cuts, all those kinds of things are going to be announced in, in May. And the government has made a big deal about tax cuts. Yes, they have. Um, surprisingly so, actually. So they legislated company tax cuts, I think, a couple of years ago for small businesses. And they're pushing really hard to get that extended to all business, which I think as an idea has merit because we used to have a flat company tax. We've now got a staggered uh, a company tax, which is probably not a good idea. So I think just just in terms of tidying up and harmonizing, I think uh, the company tax cuts should really be delivered upon. And then there's been talk of personal income tax cuts. Now, this is a, a far more intriguing idea because I like the idea of, of tax cuts. I think government should always cut taxes. But I'm not crazy about the idea of cutting taxes while the budget is still in deficit. So we're still looking $30 billion or so in deficit. The government have been promising that it will be in surplus in 2021. And now they're kind of saying, well, we've done all the hard work and let's give everybody a tax cut. Well, the thing is they haven't actually done all the hard work. Um, I would like to see the surplus first and then the tax cuts. But you're saying tax cuts for business would be okay? <sighs> yes, because taxes around the business taxes around the world, company taxes around the world are going down, um, and we have to compete for capital. And the Americans have cut their company tax rates quite substantially, which means a lot of American companies are going to be taking their money home. Uh, the last ten years or so, there have been massive cash balances that have been built up all around the world, and that's more or less American companies not repatriating their profits back home because that's when they get taxed. With these very low uh, Trump tax cuts coming in, we will actually see a lot of American companies taking their money home and Australia has to compete on the global stage for international capital. Now, a lot of people get confused around this point because they say, but we've got dividend franking. Cap uh, company tax rates don't really matter that much to Australian shareholders, but they do matter to foreign shareholders because for them it is actually a tax that they pay. 
So the company tax in Australia is actually a tax on foreigners. So company tax cuts would be appealing to foreign capital. Yes, yes. So the argument is if, if, if Australia wants to benefit from capital inflows, which more or less we have to, uh, we have to make ourselves uh, attractive to foreigners to bring their money in. The other thing is, of course, there's all, all downstream uh, benefits as well from cut, cutting company taxes. Um, that's because ultimately the economic incidence probably falls on workers and consumers. So... Ultimately, Australian workers and consumers would be better off with company taxes, and in the short run, that actually means making foreign investors better off. But what you're saying is that if we bring in personal tax cuts now and we're $30 billion in deficit, we are less likely to get into surplus by 2021. Well, the, the, the government have made the argument that these tax cuts are already factored in. Uh, certainly on the company tax side. They've actually made the argument these, the, the, these, ca- these tax cuts are factored into their forecasts. Um, but I, I don't like those arguments. It, it sounds too much on the never-never. Um, so I would actually like to see... They, 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 they could even set up enabling legislation to simply say a year after the budget returns to surplus, there will be an automatic tax cut. Now, if, if they want to deliver tax cuts um, in, in a responsible way, though, I always think you've got to cut... You've got to tax... cut taxes from a position of strength. And when the budget is in deficit, that is always a position of weakness. It doesn't matter how well the government tells the story, the economy's humming along and unemployment's coming down and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. They are still in a position of fiscal weakness. Now, what are the giveaways you expect in the budget? Um, I would expect they're going to try and butter up their base. So you're looking at things such as uh, uh, benefiting self-funded retirees or partially funded retirees. I would imagine they would be looking at things in the education space. They are always doing work on, on, on schooling. Uh, so we will see some stuff around that. Um, what sort of other giveaways? There's, there's, this year, unlike so many other years, there's been very little pre-announcing or kite flying or what have you, which is very unusual because this government has always had a a, 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 a cloud idea, just throw out ideas and see what, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, this year seems to have been very, very quiet. But as I say, it, it's, it's an election budget, so there's going to be it's going, sorry, it's going to be an election budget. So I, I imagine there's going to be some very clever giveaways to their constituencies. With that in mind, though, the budget is in deficit. Yes. Uh, and there are issues of revenue uh, and issues of costs. Now, yes. where, where do you expect the government's going to come down on that side? Um, I've, I've, I've long thought of, of, of things such as we, we inherited a, a, some very large spending programs from the previous government that were unsustainable. Such as? Uh, the Gonski school funding and such as the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I, I think those things should have been substantially wound back and expectations lowered. Um, I, I suspect we will see some movement there, some streamlining, which would obviously have to be sold um, as, as an improvement. Um, the, 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 the notions of, of collecting more tax revenue are going to be very unpopular with this particular government. I suspect we might go into a straight-out tax fight um, for the next election. 
So Labor will oppose any tax cuts. And yes. Means the next election will be fought very much on tax cuts. I, I suspect so. Um, and I, I think the Labor Party have made a big mistake with their announcement on the franking dividend changes. It takes it back to pre-2000. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, in 2000, up, up, up until the year 2000, if your if your, your your tax liabilities ran out before your franking credits ran out, you simply just lost the balance. Um, I think quite correctly, um, even though it causes downstream problems, quite correctly, the Howard government took the view that that was actually people's money. The whole notion of the of the franking credit was that you get taxed at the shareholders' tax rate, and and not, not the, so it's a pure withholding tax. So the Howard government quite correctly took the view in on principle, this is people's money, and they have to, they have to be given back their money if the government's overcollected. Um, but it is a it, it it is a compelling argument I think that Labour has is that we are simply restoring what Keating did, because that that brings Keating to mind. People remember he was a good economic manager and so on and so forth. So that's a nice piece of of of, of propaganda if you like. But nonetheless, I think everybody everybody who is a worker in a superannuation fund is worse off under this particular uh, uh, proposal, and every retiree who owns shares is worse off under this proposal. They are paying more tax. They are now paying tax at the company tax rate, which is either uh, 27.5 or 30%, as the case may be, and not at 15%. So it, it's a regressive move. I don't think it's a smart move, um, and, and I think it will be very easy to run a scare campaign around that particular decision. It will be interesting because it means the next election will be fought very much along the lines of class war. And economic management. And rightly or wrongly, it's, I mean, there's, there's always overselling all of these things. Um, the coalition still has a better reputation as economic managers than the Labor Party does. So I think to a certain extent, Labor have chosen or, or will end up having to fight on the government's favourite ground. Whereas I would have thought if they want to do well in an election, they would uh, focus more on things like inequality and education and health and those sorts of issues. Uh, but all of those is issues are big spending issues, so they obviously need the money from somewhere in order to run a campaign. And it is a, it is a plausible story. We're just returning to the Keating era. Um, so, and, and Keating, of course, himself had a good, strong economic management record. So it, it's going to be interesting to watch, but I, I think it's going to come down to a, a fight over the economy, over economic management. Um, and we will see a lot of discussion around taxation and budgets and spending, which, of course, um, are, are nice debates to actually have because that's when people are actually focused on the economy, what's going on, what's happening, how we, how we divide up the pie, who gets what. So th th that is a, a good argument. It could become nasty in a class-based argument, um, but, you know, time will, time will uh, resolve. Right, right. So, in other words, simply... We're going to see an election built around tax cuts. Yes. And uh, soaking the rich. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or the not so rich. <laughs> or the, the retired or people. The retired yeah. Rich. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. There, that's what we're looking at. Um, and, and as you say, it, it, it could be a class war, uh, warfare kind of, of thing, but it could also be a very sensible uh, debate as well. Well, it's something we can look forward to. And Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening with the news? 
Well, Australian shares joined in a global sell-off as the latest drama out of Washington, D.C. spooked global markets and sent traders out of equities and into safer assets such as gold. Donald Trump's decision to sack Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has spooked markets all over the world. Stocks in Australia fell sharply at the open after Wall Street sank in the overnight session in response to the sacking of US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. The S&P ASX 200 index ended Wednesday down 39 points or 0.7% at 5,935, while the broader All Ordinaries measure slipped 35 points to 6,043. Now earlier, Wall Street and European stock indexes closed down, pressured by a combination of the sacking of Tillerson's and losses in technology stops. Trump booted Tillerson after a series of public rifts over policy on North Korea, Russia and Iran. Trump has replaced his chief diplomat with Central Intelligence Agency Director Mike Pompeo. Now, investors are concerned that Tillerson's firing might be a sign that a deal on Iran's nuclear program could collapse, potentially cutting that country's oil output. Tillerson's exit saw the Nasdaq index fall by 1%, followed by the S&P 500, which lost 0.6%. The Dow Jones index slipped by 0.7% to 25,007. European markets also fell in response. And markets are now concerned that there's going to be a shift in hardline policy. London's FTSE fell by 1.1% and Frankfurt's DAX index tumbled by 1.6%. Adding to concerns was Trump's decision to stop the world's most expensive takeover of a technology company on national security grounds. With with the US president blocking the $150 billion sale of Qualcomm, the leading 5G mobile developer in the US. And there were plans by Singapore-based tech giant Broadcom to take it over. But Trump has blocked that. And that sent technology stocks down. Now, The European Union's Trade Commissioner, Cecilia Malmström, has dismissed President Donald Trump's threat to impose tariffs on car imports, accusing the Trump administration of using trade to threaten and intimidate Europeans, adding to concerns that the US-European rift could turn into a trade war. Mr Trump has said that the EU must eliminate barriers to its market for American goods. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross will be speaking with representatives of the European Union about eliminating the large tariffs and barriers they use against the USA, Mr Trump tweeted on Monday. Not fair to our farmers and manufacturers. Over the weekend, Mr Trump threatened to place higher levies on European cars if Europe retaliated to his tariff hikes. He told a rally that the EU countries have banded together to, in his words, screw the US on trade. But Ms. Malmström said the EU was no pushover. We are not afraid. We will stand up to the bullies, Ms. Malmström told reporters. She said trade was being used as a scapegoat. While Mr. Trump gave Australia an exemption to the higher tariffs following talks with Malcolm Turnbull over the weekend, talks in Europe 
were unsuccessful. Negotiations last Saturday between Malmstrom and a US counterpart, Robert Luchtizer, failed to reach an agreement with the EU not receiving assurances that it will be exempted from the metal tariffs. And that leaves the EU racing against time to secure an exemption before the aluminium and steel tariffs come into force in less than two weeks. Asked by reporters to respond to Mr Trump's threats, Ms Malmstrom said, It's hard to argue on Twitter over these issues, but the European Union is a very open market. She said the EU imposes a 10% levy on US car imports, but the US has a 25% levy on trucks and pickups and up to 40% on some clothes. She said on average, the EU imposes a 3% tariff on US products, while the US has an average tariff of 2.4%. Now to Australia, and the NAB Business Survey for February has domestic business conditions rising to a high of 21 points, the highest level since the monthly survey was introduced in 1997. Strength in trading and profitability from already high levels in January drove much of a record result. However, business confidence slipped by two points to a reading of nine points, perhaps reflecting the response to all the market volatility. On the other hand, rising cost of living and last week's lower-than-expected GDP growth has hit Australian consumer confidence. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index saw consumer sentiment falling 2.5% to 116, partially unwinding gains over the last two weeks. Now, an interesting piece of research from the Bank for International Settlements. The Bank for International Settlements has found that risks are building in Australia's credit market. And it's raising warning signs about the potential for stress in the banking system. Researchers at the Bank for International Settlements, which is owned by 60 central banks, looked at four measures that are designed to raise early alarms before financial vulnerabilities may emerge. In the latest review, Three of those measures, Australia's debt service ratio, household debt service ration and cross-border claims are coded amber, meaning they exceed a threshold that points to a high risk of a banking crisis in the coming years. Now, of course, central bankers failed to spot the 2007-2009 global meltdown in banking and have since looked at ways to spot future crises earlier and take preventive action. Combining indicators with movements in property prices improves the performance of indicators when applied to economies today, and these point to the build-up of risks in a number of countries. Now, according to the Bank for International Settlements Review, uh, which looked at the credit-to-GDP gap, the debt-service ratio, household debt-service ratio, and cross-border claims to GDP, Australia flashed amber in three of the four areas. Canada flashed red in two and amber in the other two. China and Russia both flash red in two areas. Hyung Son Shin, the Bank for International Settlements head of research, cautioned, however, that tougher banking capital rules introduced since the crisis should be taken into account and that amber or red warnings were only a starting point for a closer look at vulnerabilities. He said the recent volatility in global financial markets should not deter top central banks from lifting interest rates or ending years of unprecedented stimulus. Now, the latest report from the Switzerland-based group says there's bound to be more market models and that trade war warriors are making the delicate task of trying to normalise policy more complicated. 
Nonetheless, it says the move towards higher interest rates, which started in the US and is gaining traction elsewhere, should continue. Now, other piece of news is that unions have called for a uniform 7.2% increase to the minimum and award wages, which would give a $50 a week pay rise to Australia's lowest paid workers. The Australian Council of Trade Unions will ask for the rise in a submission to the Fair Work Commission's annual minimum wage case, which will apply from July. Now, this claim is highly ambitious. It's more than double last year's $22 a week increase. And it's part of a union's campaign to make the minimum wage a living wage that keeps up with the cost of living. Now, the Australian Industry Group, representing employers, has called for a modest increase of 1.8%, or $12.50 a week for those on the minimum wage, and $14.60 for the lowest award rates. Now, Labor has signalled it will change the minimum wage setting process to combat the widespread stagnation of wages, despite continued economic growth and improved Labor productivity. And on Wednesday, Malcolm Turnbull rebuked Labor for backing union pay demands, labelling Bill Shorten a craven populist, in his words, and warning that dramatic rises would cause unemployment. Now, the ACTU's proposed 7.2% increase across the board would bring the minimum wage to $744.90 a week and would lift award wages by between $55 and $85 a week. And some 2.3 million workers are paid minimum wage or award rates, which are adjusted by the Fair Work Commission in the same decision. Now, Labor's plans to end cash refund for excess dividend imputation credits has set the scene for a bidding war with the government over income tax cuts. Opposition leader Bill Shorten has pledged to end refunds for excess imputation credits for individuals and superannuation funds in a crackdown forecast to save $11.4 billion over the forward estimates. He says a future Labor government would restore Paul Keating's original dividend scheme introduced in 1987 to prevent the taxation of dividends as both company profits and personal incomes and end John Howard and Peter Costello's enhanced scheme that allows individuals and super funds to claim cash refunds for any excess imputation credits not used to offset tax liabilities. And there's an almighty debate that's broken out over that, so watch that space. Now, the Banking Royal Commission got underway, and on the first day it was presented with a litany of misconduct by Australia's financial institutions. In her opening address, Senior Counsel Assisting Rowena Orr QC listed breaches of responsible lending practices, instances of forged documents to settle loans, and the promotion of unreasonable add-on insurance on car loans among the practices that prompted calls for the Commission. The NAB's program of sales incentives has been forensically dissected by the Hain Royal Commission in the public hearings where it revealed instances of fraud, bribery, forged signatures and gaming of commission payments. The Royal Commission this week investigated claims of NAB employees in Greater Western Sydney accepting cash bribes in wide envelopes to facilitate loans they knew were based on fake documents. Now, Cadia owner Newcrest will take a financial hit from the dam wall breach at its New South Wales gold mine, but it says it's still too early to say how much it will be. Production at Newcrest's largest and lowest cost mine was halted at the weekend following a breach of a tailings dam, but the company on Monday said it can't yet estimate how much the closure and clean-up will cost. And it said in its statement to the market, 
Whilst it is too early in the evaluation and recovery process for Newcrest to provide an indication of the extent to which FY production, capital and cost guidance will be impacted, this event will adversely impact guidance. Further updates will be provided to the market when available. Newcrest's first half profit announced last month dropped by half as a result of an earthquake that halted production at Cadia for three months last year. And Newcrest says there's been no further movement in the dam wall since last Friday. Now, Atlassian Corps' rise to a record on last Friday has catapulted its two Australian co-founders onto the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. The fortunes of co-chief executive officers Michael Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar have risen by $1.1 billion in 2018 to $4.1 billion apiece, making them the 499th and 500th richest people on the planet. Atlassian makes works collaboration products like HipChat and Trello, which it bought for $425 million last year. The Sydney-based company saw buildings grow 43% in three months ending December 31st, helping its share price jump by a third so far this year. The business, which has more than 100,000 customers, doesn't have a sales force. It prefers to rely on word of mouth to generate sales. And Farquhar and Cannon Brooks, who founded Atlassian in 2002, have become figureheads for Australia's tech scene, and they're already used to rubbing shoulders with billionaires. And that's it for this week. And next week, we're going to have a great interview with a former army officer, Wade Tink, who set up a social enterprise called Project Everest. In the meantime, you can listen to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care and I look forward to talking to you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.